Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Life changes fast. A phone call, a job offer, the look on someone's face that tells the news, good or bad, long before they say their first word. It's a hard lesson, one that we may never fully learn, and one for which we can never truly be prepared. And yet, ironically, it's the one lesson that seems the most consistent of all, even when everything around us is about to change. Forty years ago, at a local bar down in the valley of the Rio Grande in Texas, that lesson became visible in profound ways. When a hitman's bullet that was meant to claim the life of one person instead claimed the lives of two others, two innocent bystanders who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's a tragic, complicated story, like something out of Cormac McCarthy, but almost immediately, the depth of the tragedy was met by the full weight of law enforcement and the legal system, whose dedicated officers set out to find those responsible and bring them to justice. We are so grateful to have with us John Promomo, an historian and former magistrate judge from Texas whose firsthand experience with this case led to his new book, The Rio Grande Sniper Killings, Caught in the Sights of a Drug Conspiracy, just published by the History Press. What a thrill to continue our new series on new releases with retired judge Promomo as we untangle the knot of this compelling case. John, welcome to Crime Capsule, and congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm very glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background. You are a retired magistrate judge, and this is your third published volume. Is that right? Yes. I wrote uh, two other books before this, one entitled The Appomattox Generals about uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain from Maine and John Brown Gordon from Georgia, who were the generals at the surrender ceremony at Appomattox. Uh, which is the anniversary is actually today, April 12th. And I also wrote uh, Architect of Death at Auschwitz about Rudolf Hiss, the uh, uh, commandant of Auschwitz who actually created the camp uh, and was responsible for many of the atrocities that occurred there. Uh, so this is my third book, The Rio Grande Sniper Killings. Tell us a little bit about your path to the bench. Uh, how did you end up as a judge? Well, I always knew probably very early on that I wanted to be a lawyer, uh, probably from the age of 15. So that was not a hard uh, career path for me to choose. Uh, I don't know that I ever thought I was going to become a lawyer or a judge, rather. But uh, as time went on, uh, the opportunity developed and uh, uh, I was appointed as a United States magistrate judge in 1988. And I served in that capacity until... 2017. So it was for 29 years. I was uh, very privileged to be able to serve in that capacity for that length of time. Is this what they call your retirement? Is that what they call time off for good behavior? I think so. Well, we're delighted to have you. Now, help us to understand how you uh, did this sort of sidestep into authorship. Um, where did the opportunity and the inclination to do the research on these historical co topics come from? I've always been a, a, a fan of history, and I, I never really uh, considered myself to be a, 
an author. I'm more of a, a writer that enjoys these subjects. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Civil War, <clears throat> and I liked these two particular individuals, and, and uh, so I wrote about them. And then uh, I was planning a trip to uh, overseas, and um, and I was going to go to Auschwitz, and I was doing research about um, <coughs> about um, the commandant and realized very little had been written about him. So I decided to write a book about um, Hess or Huss. And uh, so that uh, uh, turned out to be a very interesting project. And then uh, the most recent book was, it was a case that uh, when I was a law clerk uh, back in 1980, uh, the uh, federal judge I was a briefing attorney for, um, it was a case that just had a very deep impression on me and is something that stayed with me throughout my legal career. So um, I ended up uh, writing the last book uh, was about that, uh, that particular case. Let's jump in right to that moment, because uh, as you write early on in uh, the Rio Grande sniper killings, this case quite literally sort of fell in your lap. I mean, you had no idea it was coming, and then suddenly the case enters uh, your docket, your courtroom's docket, and uh, there you are having to prepare materials for your judge. Did you have any idea at the time how profound this case would become? No, not at all. In fact, federal court is very different from state court. Normally, we do not handle cases involving violence at all. The reason this case was in federal court at all because it involved a drug conspiracy, but it evolved into a case involving violence because of the fact that um, uh, some of the conspirators who did not want to be identified decided that they were going to prevent one of their accomplices from testifying before a federal grand jury. And when they did that, it evolved into a, uh, a violent crime. And it was that violent crime that ended up in federal court. Uh, so uh, it was very unusual to have the case end up in federal court at all. This is a case with some serious twists and turns in it, which really none of the parties could have ever seen um, coming. And that takes place from the moment of the attempted assassination all the way through to uh, the proceedings within the trial. Let's start just by introducing some of the cast of characters here. You mentioned first and foremost, there is this informant whom you identify in the book solely as Jimmy for his own privacy and out of respect. And that you maintain that all the way through. You're sort of still keeping his identity a secret. Yes. Um, he was um, a member of the drug conspiracy, but um, he uh, has never, to my knowledge, committed any crime since then. He was a young man. He, he's, uh, as far as I know, engaged in a productive life. And um, I know I tried to contact him and he was very um, concerned about the effect that the book might have on his career. And so I was, you know, and I don't, I had no intention to to hurt him in any way, certainly. So I I, I used uh, uh, just the name Jimmy to identify him uh, as uh, as the uh, the victim in this case. Right, and his main role, which is of course pertinent to the entire uh, scenario here, is that he was the pilot. Yes, 
he was flying the marijuana. Uh, he uh, rented the airplane down in South Texas and he was flying, he flew down into Mexico. Um, they loaded the marijuana into the private plane and he was flying the plane back to Austin, Texas, where it was going to be unloaded. And then uh, the intent was to distribute it to uh, willing distributors and then uh, marijuana users. And you you write in this sort of interesting aside, you say that um, the of the payroll sort of scheme in a truck running operation, uh, the pilot actually stands to make quite a bit of money. It's a, it's a high paid position, so to speak. I was quite surprised how much um, he was going to make. He was he was a young pilot, probably about 28 years old, I believe, at the time. And uh, he was for renting the airplane one day, flying to Mexico, and then uh, flying the marijuana to Austin. He was going to make $15,000 in 1980, which was a significant amount of money. Uh, and uh, so, yes, he and he was making uh, a lot more money than anyone else in the uh, conspiracy other than the organizers. In our previous uh, interviews with Texas authors, we've had um, E.R. Bills, who wrote a great book called Texas Oblivion and our Great Escape series. And our sharp-eared listeners will remember uh, from that particular interview that we had a another disappearing pilot uh, which was involved, who was involved in an alleged drug-running scheme. I mean, the, the question is, with that kind of money at stake, you have to be extremely careful, first of all, and you have to not get too excited about all those Cadillacs that you're going to buy as soon as you get back on the tarmac, aren't you? <laughs> Well, there was, you know, the it, it was interesting doing some research about the um, um, marijuana importation um, uh, industry back in uh, back in the eighties. Uh, there were so many young kids doing this that they were they just thought it was a game. Uh, they they uh, they were just running around with all this money in their pockets and and uh, they they just felt like they were beating the man at the game and uh, you know they weren't. They didn't consider themselves to be big time criminals. They just, they just uh, were making easy money as far as they saw it. Well, we'll come to that in just a moment. Let's uh, keep putting our characters on the stage here. Um, I do want to foreground the the true victims in this particular case um, because they never should have lost their lives uh, in on this day in in 1980. Um, Charlotte and Kevin, these innocent bystanders at the bar, who uh, were killed when the assassin missed Jimmy. And we'll, we'll unpack all this in a moment, but just tell us a little bit about Charlotte and Kevin. Charlotte had just graduated from high school in Rolla, Missouri, and she was 18 years old. Uh, her parents gave her this trip down to McAllen, Texas as a graduation present. Uh, she had a friend down there uh, who had just, who moved there from Rolla, Missouri. And so she was going to visit her friend, had been down there for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. And uh, the trip down to Pepe's on the river where the shooting occurred was, uh, she'd been there, they'd been there several times. And this was going to be um, one of their last trips to Pepe's before um, uh, she went back to Missouri. And uh, Kevin uh, was uh, a South Texas native uh, he was about 20, 26, 28 years old, and uh, he was uh, grown up in South Texas. Um, he had um, uh, was born with cerebral palsy, so he had some weakness on his right side, And uh, but he 
I talked to Keith, his brother, and he was he was didn't let any of his handicaps affect him. Uh, he worked as a gunsmith uh, uh, down in South Texas, uh, and he and his brother um, were just extremely close. And uh, uh, and they uh, and he had just gotten off from work uh, and was going to taking a one week vacation. And so he and a friend of his had gone down to Pepe's uh, to spend the evening uh, on the night that this happened. And it was interesting to me as I was reading your account because it sounded like, and please correct me if I'm mistaken about this, it it sounded like uh, both Charlotte and Kevin had not actually met before. They were sort of friendly that night at the bar. They were sort of chatting as they were listening to the music and just enjoying you know, the company of the people at Pepe's and so forth. But am I right in understanding that they were, prior to this particular day, they were actually strangers to one another? I believe so. I don't have any information to indicate that they knew each other <clears throat> prior to July the 13th, 1980. I think they were just visiting there at the bar. There was a huge crowd there that Sunday, and I think they just happened to be talking to each other because they were some of the last people at Pepe's before it closed that night. And um, they were just standing or sitting there at the bar uh, visiting with each other and talking uh, shortly before the bar closed. So we have two ringleaders, uh, sort of master conspirators involved in uh, setting up this attempted assassination. Uh, we have Boyce Rommel and we have David Iskey. Um, and from your account, it sounds like these guys had just been full of trouble since day one. They'd come out of their mamas kicking, screaming, and hollering and determined to you know, just raise hell wherever they went. And uh, was there a decent bone in their body? <laughs> I have to ask. Well, I, I couldn't say there's not a decent bone in their body, but I think that when it came to um, um, involve, involvement with drugs, I don't think they had too many qualms about doing that. I think um, both of them had been to, to prison, federal prison before. Both of them, you know, were very involved uh, with uh, uh, drugs and smuggling drugs. Uh, and, and Iski would continue to do it after this. You know, Rummel, this would be his last uh, foray into into drug smuggling. But uh, they both were had had no uh, no hesitation about dealing in drugs. And it, it struck me, John, that as you describe their kind of very checkered histories as young men um, in you know, Texas in the '70s and so forth, they really were in and out of jail very frequently. And what I wanted to ask you. From the legal perspective, I mean, uh, I know that sort of three strikes in your outlaws are not uniformly applied everywhere. Not all states have them and that sort of thing. But these guys had such a long rap sheet, and yet they kept getting bonded out. <laughs> so I was wondering, didn't, was there never a, a recognition on the sort of prosecutorial side that as soon as you get them out, they're just going to go right back to their old ways? It just kept happening. You know, uh, the the um, I think I pointed this out, especially in the introduction, the penalties back then, especially for drug crimes, uh, at least in federal court, were not nearly as severe as they are now. Uh, these guys faced a um, much less severe penalty, which makes the, the killing of Charlotte and Kevin even more tragic um, than they would if they were conv uh, convicted uh, today. Uh, so it's um, they you know, getting convicted did not 
really have seem to have any severe consequences for them. So they, they get convicted and then they'd go back out and, and, you know, they might serve their time, which would be minimal. And then they'd go back out and get convicted again and serve a minimal amount of time. And it just did not seem that uh, uh, the prosecution and punishment for drugs was nearly as um, uh, severe as it is today. Uh, and it probably was after that. A lot of laws came out, the three strike law and uh, other laws about uh, crack cocaine and other things that uh, are, are really severe uh, uh, came out after the 70s. Well, we have one more antagonist and we have one more protagonist to cover before we get into uh, the lay of the land at the time. And we need to talk about the trigger man just briefly, um, Lloyd Walker. You know, here on Crime Capsule, we do not uh, glorify uh, those who participate in violence, but we do seek to understand them. And you write that Walker had been, he had served in Vietnam and he had come back like many veterans had uh, very profoundly changed by the experience and that um, he had dealt uh, a lot of violence, you know, in that particular theater and some of that returned uh, to American shores. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was you have this very interesting description of him, uh, which the investigators and the folks kind of who uh, were tracking the case and so forth, you describe him as, quote unquote, an Austin type, unquote. And for those of us, myself included, who are not extremely sensitive to the fine distinctions of Texas geographies and sort of the, the, the types of folks who live in different cities, can you just unpack what it meant for, for Walker uh, to be an Austin type? Austin type was a was a um, a characterization that the owner of Pepe's uh, gave to the police uh, long before they knew who Lloyd Chris Walker was. Uh, I guess in South Texas, you know, that there was certain individuals that that would patronize Pepe's, and uh, when Lloyd Chris Walker walked into the bar, he just stood out like a sore thumb. Um, you know, long blonde hair and uh um a wire rim glasses and uh and he you know i guess the clothing he was wearing and you know he just did not look like somebody from south texas who was a regular customer at peppy's and um, the the owner at peppy's just picked him out immediately and and he's the one that told the police yes there was this austin type guy here and uh and he, this is where he was sitting and he even knew what he was drinking so um, so that's that's how he identified him to the police, and uh, um, his keen observations is what um, uh, was really uh, critical in helping to eventually identify Walker. I'm trying to think of a of a good analogy, and I wonder if it's sort of like you know a straight laced uh, businessman from the Florida Panhandle, you know, going all the way down to Miami and hanging out in some of the Cuban American neighborhoods, and folks just kind of saying bit of a fish out of water, aren't you? you know? <laughs> well, he was, um, it was interesting that he didn't, it did not occur to him that walking into the bar would uh, be an unwise uh, decision because uh, when he, uh, he could see, uh, uh, Jimmy was pointed out to him from the parking lot because this was an open bar, but he decided that he wanted to get a close up look at Jimmy. So he went into the bar uh, where people could see him, and um, in particular the owner of the of Pepe's, 
and uh, and he did stick out, and uh, that was uh, that was a mistake. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. We'll move from the Texas underworld here to the overworld and to your good friend Carl Pierce, uh, who was the assistant U.S. attorney at the time. And he ended up uh, sort of leading the case along uh, with sort of a small team of folks who were working on this particular case because it did get to be uh, so extensive. But tell us just a little bit about Carl. Carl's is a very uh, interesting uh, individual, and he's a a very unique prosecutor. I remember Carl very well from uh, my time as a, a briefing attorney for Judge Garcia, uh, because Carl was one of the most uh, efficient and effective prosecutors. And I think I mentioned that in the book, because I always remember how he would just get right to the point with cases. Uh, and uh, and I believe he really had a positive impact on juries and uh, and knew exactly how to how to tell the juries, get to the point that the juries needed to hear. And he was um, a, a good prosecutor. And I think the people, the uh, supervisors in his office knew that. And he was uh, involved with, uh, he and another attorney from the U.S. Attorney's Office, John Murphy, were uh, handling a lot of drug crime cases. And uh, he was already in charge of the Loop 360 case, which is the, the marijuana conspiracy uh, involving Jimmy and the importation of marijuana from Mexico. And, uh, and so he uh, uh, naturally also got the, the case against Lloyd Chris Walker for attempting to assassinate Jimmy before his, uh, he could testify before the federal grand jury. But he was a, a very, very effective prosecutor uh, and uh, uh, a good person to watch if you wanted to learn how to be a prosecutor and how to effectively uh, communicate with a federal grand, a federal jury in uh, a trial. I want to take a quick look at the context for this crime. You write that drug running in Texas in the 70s and the early 80s, you actually use the term uh, glory days, which I thought was really interesting. You say it was rampant, that everybody was kind of getting in on it, that oftentimes uh, the folks who were using it were also the ones smuggling it and vice versa. Um, 
why why was this such a golden age for drug running in that area? I think back then there was uh, it was just the uh, beginning of um, marijuana was just it was early in the marijuana days where where uh, a lot of marijuana was being imported. People were seeing how easy it was to get it across the border. Um, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of investigation and prosecution, but there was so much marijuana that the the prosecutors and the police uh, were having a hard time keeping up. And the and the border between Texas and Mexico is large. Um, uh, one of the things I point out in the book is that the district. Uh, there are two federal districts, the Southern District of Texas and the Western District of Texas, and their criminal caseloads are enormous because of the amount of drugs that are imported from Mexico. And back in the 70s, it was just beginning with marijuana and other drugs as well. But, but marijuana was at that time was really probably the early drug of choice. Um, you know, uh, people just didn't really they weren't getting into the harder drugs as much yet, but it didn't take long for that to come along. Uh, marijuana was just easy to get in and, and lots and lots of people were using it. University of Texas in Austin, where this load of marijuana was flown to, was a, a ready source of, of users for, uh, of marijuana. You know, it's interesting because, of course, economists and sociologists, you know, have looked at drugs, the pure business model of drugs, right? I mean, independent of any kind of moral uh, dimension you might want to add to them. It's just, you know, what is the structure of an operation like this? And it struck me as I was reading your account that there is a lot of money to be made in one shipment, you know, the way that it gets um, parceled out and sold with different profit margins. But payroll, pure payroll, not overhead, is high, right? I mean, you have a lot of people who are involved in the operation from start to finish, whether it's the guys who pick it up in the vans, whether it's the distributors, whether it's the pilot like Jimmy, you know, they're just in, in situations like this, you can have a payroll, which is for one for one smuggling run, you know, 10 people deep, right? And then, as they say, in the, the music world, you got to cut the bread, right? You got to cut the profits, you got to distribute all that. So you, you have to be very careful not to piss anybody off, first of all. Uh, you know, you have to be careful to protect your your assets, as they say. Um, but then you also have to be careful to uh, to make sure that you're making money off the whole thing. And it sounds like from your account that if it all goes well, obviously this case did not, but if it all goes well, you can come away with thousands and thousands of dollars in the 1970s. That does take you a long way. The marijuana in Mexico was very cheap. Um, uh, people uh, in the United States, like the lead conspirators in this case, were um, uh, had connections to Mexico, which was uh, uh, one thing that was necessary. Uh, and and the the Mexica, the Mexican marijuana was was very cheap, so it did not it did not cost so much there, and they were able to make a, a very big profit once they got it here to the United States. So it was uh, they would. They would pay. They also they always had to have some helpers. They had to have somebody to load, somebody to transport. Uh, but uh, uh, you know they and they they were always paid something. But it was of course a lesser amount depending upon their role in the conspiracy. But the the leaders they made a, a good sum of money and they would 
do this repeatedly until they were caught. And in this case, um, you know, as the book points out, it was just, it was, uh, it was not necessarily good investigative work by, by police that, that, that foiled this marijuana conspiracy. It was just poor luck. Yeah. So tell us, tell us what, tell us what the Loop 360 operation was supposed to look like, how it was supposed to go, and then tell us how it actually went and how that luck ran out on them. Well, it was supposed to be the, uh, Jimmy was supposed to fly into Mexico, uh, get the marijuana, and, um, and then uh, fly to Austin, and, uh, and it would be distributed from there. And uh, he, he rented the plane uh, in McAllen, uh, flew, down, flew down, they took the seats out because they needed the room for the sacks of marijuana. And uh, he flew down about 300 miles into Mexico, and he met um, Boyce Rummel, who is one of the, 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 the lead conspirators in the case. And he uh, and one of the other conspirators, they loaded the marijuana into the airplane and uh, paid uh, a, a, a Mexican down there a, a, you know, a certain amount of money for the, uh, plus I think a shotgun and some shotgun shells was part of the paid payment for the marijuana for the product yep. and he flew and he and then one of the other conspirators john christopher burris were flying back to austin and they intended to make a night flight so what jimmy did was he, they were going to tape over the navigation lights on the uh, private plane and so he landed in a in uh, falfurious texas uh, uh and before on his way back to austin well when he landed in falfurious um, and they got out, he and Burris got out to tape over the navigation lights. Someone in uh, Falfurious saw them doing that and suspected that um, something, uh, they were up to no good. And so they notified, this person in Falfurious notified law enforcement. And uh, law enforcement at that time was becoming more uh, aware of these, Im these uh, importation efforts, whether it was by uh, on the ground or flying it in, or sometimes even, you know, by boat uh, on the Gulf of Mexico. But uh, uh, law enforcement was advised. Uh, they notified uh, Houston Air Traffic Control, and uh, Houston Air Traffic Control began tracking Jimmy's airplane. Uh, and they notified a, uh, an, Im uh, an immigration agent, or rather, an, uh, uh, yes, an, an agent of the... Uh, customs agent here in San Antonio uh, about uh, this airplane. And the customs agent had his own plane and began uh, and, and then uh, went to, towards Austin so that he could uh, find out where Jimmy was going. And uh, by that time, the, the Jimmy was in trouble. Uh, they found where uh, Jimmy was going. The uh, Austin air traffic control began tracking his airplane. They saw that he landed over on Loop 360 in West Austin, um, and the um, they unloaded the marijuana there. There was uh, David Iskey was there uh, with other conspirators to unload the marijuana and transport it to a location in West Austin. And then uh, uh, Jimmy and Burris uh, flew to from there, the short distance there, to the Austin Municipal Airport or International Airport. And, uh, but by then they knew uh, what they were up to. Uh, Austin police uh, tracked the cars to the uh, 
location in West Austin where they found the marijuana and agents were waiting for Jimmy and Burris at the Austin airport and he was arrested at the Austin airport. So that's, uh, uh, that was the beginning of the investigation into the Loop 360 marijuana conspiracy. To, to the best of your knowledge, do you know whether Jimmy was aware as he was flying the plane that, you know, the, that his goose had been cooked, that he was being tailed? I, I don't know. I, I was never able to speak with Jimmy about that. He did not. He testified at the trial of Lloyd Chris Walker, but he did not testify whether or not he was aware at that point that um, he um, uh, had been he'd been tracked and that he'd been caught. Uh, he, uh, I think that there was someone else at the scene who had seen another, the other airplane, the customs airplane circling around the landing site. And uh, that was uh, testimony at the trial. Uh, whether or not Jimmy was aware of that, I am not 100% sure. It, it seems logical he might've been. I don't know if he had any choice but to, to go to the airport he might not have had enough fuel to go anywhere else, uh, but uh, and maybe he was just hoping that uh, he and Burris could get away but uh, before he was arrested. But um, once he landed at the Austin airport, uh, the agents uh, were already waiting for him. I was trying to put myself kind of in his position and thinking, yes, you do. You only have so much fuel, right? You got to land somewhere. And what you know, if if there's a you know funny little ping on your radar <laughs> on your six that you weren't expecting, you know what options do you really have in that moment? Especially you know in the pre pre satellite phone you know kind of age, you kind of you have to make a decision on the spot, don't you? And let me ask you, um, one of the major parts of your analysis, and I, I really appreciated this as I was reading it, John, it's uh, with your legal expertise, you keep the discussion of the, the legal dimension uh, as far from jargon as it can get. I found it to be very clear, and I know that uh, your readers uh, elsewhere will also appreciate that. You write that as soon as Jimmy is picked up and uh, brought in, he faces this kind of unique situation regarding incrimination um, and the stakes of what it means to plead the fifth in this particular case. Um, can you just unpack that for us a little bit? It's, it's not as simple as saying he can plead the fifth because it's not about self-incrimination in this case. There were so many other conspirators that that, that uh, method of self-protection did not apply. Am I right in framing it that way? Well, initially... He had the right to sell to the Fifth Amendment uh, uh, to claim that he could not uh, testify because of self-incrimination. Uh, he lost that right once he uh, was convicted. Uh, he and Burrs both decided uh, they were not going to cooperate with the government, and so uh, which is all which is usually what happens if you. Um, decide to reach a plea agreement with the government because the government will off, often, as part of the plea agreement, require that you cooperate, provide some information about the conspiracy, uh, which will usually include the names of the other conspirators and details about the conspiracy, but they did not want to do that. So they went to trial. They were both convicted uh, and they were both sentenced uh, for their roles in the Loop 360 conspiracy. Once that happened, he no longer had a right uh, uh, not to incriminate himself because he was already convicted. 
it was at that point that he could not refuse to testify. And it was uh, that at that point is when Pierce summoned him before and first before the federal grand jury in Austin to identify the other members of the Luke 360 conspiracy. Because Pierce wants to get to the top. He doesn't know who is at the top, but that's where he wants to get, right? Well, and he knows that there are other members. He, he would like to get to the top. It's not. It's always hard for these the prosecutors to get to the very top, but uh, a lot of times they have to chip away at these conspiracies, and, and uh, they want to get from one conspirator to another if they can get to the very top. Uh, that is that would be their ultimate goal. It is often very hard to do, but uh, with with um, Burris and Jimmy convicted, they knew that there were other people involved, and uh, to get them before a federal grand jury and to get them to testify, uh, that they would be able to learn more information, uh, more details about the conspiracy and the names of the other conspirators. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been John Promomo, author of The Rio Grande Sniper Killings, Caught in the Sights of a Drug Conspiracy, published this month by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back soon with more new releases. Stay tuned. Thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.